Hello and welcome to the Free Mind Podcast with Seth and Nova Reddy. This is Stephen Robles, and we have a very special episode for you guys this week. We have a special guest interview with Nancy Piercy, and she'll be coming very soon. But if you have not heard of Nancy, she's the author of the recently released book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. Her earlier books include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, How Now Shall We Live? and Total Truth. Nancy's books have been translated into eight languages. She is professor and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University. A former agnostic, Piercy has spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth. She was highlighted as one of the five top women apologists by Christianity Today and was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. We're so excited to start talking to her in just a moment. And before we do, we'd like to just tell you one more time about Impact 360. It's actually ironic. Nancy was just on a podcast. The Impact 360 has a podcast. If you have not heard that yet, we'd encourage you to go subscribe and listen. Again, great apologetic reference there. But impact360.org is a great website where they have the online courses that you may have heard us talk about before, about truth, worldview, Gen Z, and everything in between, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we encourage you, go to impact360.org, and when you sign up for one of those online courses, use the promo code FREEMIND for a whole $25 off. Come on. Hey, neighbor. I, I need y'all to give the slow clap. That was the best intro I think I've heard Brother Stephen do <laughs> thus far. Good Thank you. One take, y'all. One take. He's one magician. take. Yay. <laughs> But and we and we did see him on uh, that she did this interview on Impact. We did not steal your idea, Jonathan. If you're listening, yes, brother. we love you, Jonathan. Um, we just, it just happened to work love out, Impact. so God must be on the move. Yes, with this. that's right. Great minds think alike. Well, about a week and a half ago, I was in my kitchen doing some work, and I got a text from a friend that said, "Hey, Nancy Piercy's in town," and I said, "Wow, Seth." Nancy's in town. Can I can I go? And we had so much going on, but we were like, yes, you need to go there. So I rush. I had about 40 minutes to make it to the lecture. And I walk in. 40, and you had like 15. 15, right? <laughs> about like 15. I rushed, got dressed and made it there. And I tell you. It, what, just to jump sure. in, if I could ever get you to get that ready, get ready well, that fast well, for anything see? else in life, we'd be in business. I've never seen her get ready Listen, so quick. I she ran excited. out the door, GPS in hand, and walked into such a great lecture. I mean, everyone had pen and pads out, just taking great notes because the information was so so impactful. So Nancy, we're so grateful that you took time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I enjoyed very much meeting you at that event. Thank you, Nancy. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about your story? And how did you go from agnostic to becoming one, one of the leading Christian intellectuals today of our time? Yeah, I'm so glad that you started with that question because I didn't get a chance to give that personal side when I gave the lecture that you heard okay. down at the Lakeland Christian School. So uh, I, I love to be able to tell my story because I'm so excited about the way God acted in my life. I was raised in a Lutheran home, mm-hmm. but I don't know if you know uh, how it's like to be raised in an ethnic home. My my parents were Scandinavian. Ah. Uh, and so the the Lutheranism had more to do with being Scandinavian than <laughs> than a real personal commitment. Kind of like, you know, all all Italians are Catholic. Sure. Um, <laughs> yes. I get that. I get that. So I Yeah, exactly. There was not a lot of real uh, spirituality in a home. And when I was in high school, going to a secular public univer- uh, public high school, I just started asking questions. How do we know it's true? 
In fact, that's the only question I was asking. Mm. How do we know it's true? Because I had secular textbooks, secular teachers, secular friends, and it seemed like how in the world can Christians claim against this vast secular culture we're in that we're the ones who have the truth? Mm. It seemed a bit implausible. And so the sad thing was that when I talked to the Christian adult in my life, none of them had any answers. You must realize apologetics was just not very well known back then. And so I talked to a Christian university professor and I thought, you know, he should have thought deeply about why he's a Christian. And when I asked him point blank, why are you a Christian? He said, works for me. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> wow. That's it. That's, that's it. And then I had an opportunity even to talk to a Christian um, seminary dean. And I thought, certainly he will give me something more substantial. And all he said was, don't worry, we all have doubts sometimes. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. As though it was just a psychological phase and you'll outgrow it. Mm. And, you know, I thought, well, how do, why don't you have answers to my doubts in that case? So it was a very intentional act on my part. I said, if I don't have good reasons for knowing Christianity is true, then I should not say that I'm a Christian. You would say that about anything. If you don't have good reasons for it, you shouldn't hold it. And so I very intentionally, about halfway through high school, set aside my religious upbringing and embarked on a search for truth. I decided, I guess it's up to me to find out what's true, and I'll have to just investigate all the religions and philosophies Mm. that are out there and see if I can come up with what I think is the best candidate for truth. And so... It was a couple years later, I was going to school in Europe. We had lived in Europe when I was a kid, um, and so I wanted to go back. I really liked it. And while I was there, I stumbled across the ministry of Francis Schaeffer, which is in Switzerland. And he was, um, it was the first time I had ever encountered apologetics. (laughs) And I was stunned. I had no idea that Christianity could be supported with reasons and evidence and good arguments. I had never encountered any Christians like Mm. that. And what's more, um, I should tell you, I'd started really studying philosophy since, you know, since, since Christianity had let me down, I had had decided maybe, maybe the place where people even ask these questions is is in philosophy. That's where you ask questions like, what is Mm, truth? Yeah. How do we know it? Is there a foundation for ethics or is it just, you know, what's true for me and what's true for you? And I had come pretty rapidly to the conclusion that there were no answers. If, if there was no God, then clearly there was no basis for ethics. There was no basis for purpose in life. We're just an accident, you know, created by natural forces on a rock flying through space. Sure. So there's no ultimate meaning or purpose to life. And, and I even came to skepticism. In other words, if all I have is my puny brain in the vast scope of time and history, hmm. then how could I think I could attain universal, objective truth? Wow. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I thought that was clearly ridiculous. So I had already totally um, accepted all kinds of secularism and relativism and, uh, and even skepticism by the time I went to Labrie. And so, again, Labrie was the first, uh, Francis Schaeffer's ministry is called Labrie, which is French for the shelter. Mm. It's in the French-speaking part of Switzerland. 
when I arrived at Labrie, I was really primed with all these secular isms. And again, I'd never encountered Christians who even knew about these secular isms, hmm. let alone have answers to them. And so uh, that was very impressive. I was very impressed. I was so impressed that I left. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> I said, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I stayed a month and then decided I need to get away because it was, I was so attracted to the form of Christianity that I saw there. Not, you guys would appreciate this. Not only was Schaefer known for his apologetics, he was known for his endorsement of the art. Mm-hmm. Way cool. And I, I was uh, in Germany studying at the Heidelberg Conservatory, studying violin. Oh, that's awesome. Pretty so, cool. Yeah, so the music, the music and art part of Labrie was also very attractive. Um, wow. And... And I was afraid I might be drawn in for emotional reasons, and I did not want that. Christianity Mm. had let me down once before, and I was not going to go there again unless I was absolutely intellectually convinced it was true. Mm. And so, but through Libri, I discovered there was such a thing as apologetics, and so I continued reading. uh, Like, I discovered C.S. Lewis. I'd never heard of him before. (laughs) G.K. Chesterton and others. Yes. And eventually I decided I had learned enough to be intellectually convinced that it was true. And that, you know, it's time to, to, Schaefer used to say, it's time to bow the knee before the Lord and say, okay, I give up. You won the argument is how I thought of it. (laughs) You won the argument. But then I, I was not in a church or anything. I had no Christian friends. And so I thought, where do I find other Christians? Well, I knew some at Labrie back in Switzerland. So I went back to Labrie and studied there for four more months. And that's where I really got grounded in understanding Christian worldview and apologetics, Mm. and also the more personal discipleship side as well. So that was really the start of my Christian life. And and that's why I've been so passionate about apologetics ever since, because it was such a huge part of my own conversion. And so I have just uh, such a heart for young people who are asking those kinds of questions and who's who are looking for solid, thoughtful uh, reasons, rational reasons and arguments to support Christianity. So many people just don't think they're out there and they and they are, as as you as you guys know so well, there are good answers to our questions. For sure. Amen. Well, I have a few questions I'm going to bombard you with. One, <laughs> Is there a future for a Seth and Nervous song with a Nancy Piercy violin ah, song? Hey, oh, yes. <laughs> uh, feature uh, in, the, in the future, yes, p- yes, possibly. Yes. And then uh, two, uh, do you have any interesting Francis Schaefer stories or just maybe what he was like as a person? We've we've kind of followed his work over the years, and, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know anything about him. What was he like? Maybe just some interesting thing that stuck out to you, and then we'll jump into more after that. But what would be your, what would be your maybe Francis Schaefer story or, or sketch for us? The most important thing is that he was authentic. Mm. Wow. I have since then mm. worked in some large Christian ministries and organizations and have seen how easy it is for Christian celebrities Ooh. to create a very impressive public image. Mm. Wow. But if you ask the people they actually work with and you ask their family members, they can be somewhat, you know, somewhat different in real life. <laughs> it's, easy to, 
it's easy to parachute into a conference and be a talking head and and uh, come across very well. Yeah. But the, the the real question is, how do you treat your coworkers? How do you treat the your, your secretary? How do you treat the janitor? How do you treat your wife and children? Well, with Schaefer, there was no question about it because his home was his ministry, and so you saw him day in and day out. And of all the Christian celebrities I've had the honor to work with, he was the most authentic. He mm. was definitely the the same person in public and in private. Um, and his um, the, the the reason he started this sort of residential ministry, which was unique, right? Mm-hmm. We many people who went to Labrie and became Christians there said that at least at least as persuasive as the apologetics. The apologetics was very persuasive, but at least as big a factor in becoming a Christian was seeing a Christian community mm-hmm. and a quality a quality of love that they wow. had never experienced before. Wow! And that's because he opened his home to young people. And as uh, what happened is he was always an evangelist at heart. But when his um, children went to were old enough to go to college and they went down the mountain, they were in the Swiss Alps, right? So he, they went down the mountain to a uh, university in the city of Lausanne, Switzerland. And their friends would ask them questions about God and religion. And they would say, you ought to talk to my dad. He's <laughs> <laughs> He's really good with questions like that. Oh, wow. And so they would. There was a little train that went up the mountain. um, And they would go up the mountain to Schaefer's home. And because it was so inaccessible, they would usually spend the whole weekend. And then they would tell their friends and another group of Mm -hmm. young people would come up. And then they'd tell their friends. And pretty soon they were young people sleeping in all the couches and all the hallways and all the balconies. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Grew sort of organically into this uh, residential kind of ministry where people would come and actually watch you live day in and day out, and you had you had to live out your Christian convictions in the way you treated people, you know, in your down moments, you know, when you're washing the dishes and when you're tending the garden or whatever. And so that was that was a unique ministry that is. It, I think it's hard to reproduce, but for that period, God influenced a whole generation of young people, not just through his books, not just through his ideas, but through his life, wow. through who he was as a person. And that was very unique. Wow. Amazing. That's amazing. When you think about the people that have come through Labrie, like yourself and Oz Guinness and David Wells and so many others and so many that didn't even get a chance to be a part of that community, but were impacted by the life and ministry of Francis Schaefer. It's amazing that this guy on the Swiss mountains, there's something about the mountains, but impacted so many people, man, in, in that direction. Um, I wanted to, there's so many things I want to ask you. I got to ask you this before we move into the book. You said that apologetics played a major role in your life. Sometimes, you know, we hear that, we really, you know, apologetics can get a bad name sometimes for good reason, but it, but it can often be 
derided as like unnecessary or even harmful to true Christian faith. But for you, you're saying it was part of the process by which you really came to Christ. And I would imagine you saw others like that, like you said, uh, in Labrie and other places. Could you just give a little word on that, that the importance of apologetics and, and how it does play a part for many people in their spiritual journeys toward Christ? Right. When people criticize apologetics for being too cognitive or too rational or something mm. like that, I say, in that case, you're doing it wrong. Uh, <laughs> ooh, very good. Very good. <laughs> because for me, it was for me, apologetics was life and death. Wow. You know, for me, um, I understood very much that in order to have meaning to life, um, you have to answer these basic questions about who are we, where do we come from, where where did this universe come from, and like I said, is there a foundation for morality? I mean, I really struggled with this on a deep personal level. How do I know the choices I'm making are right or wrong? How do I know that I make a choice today that's going to end up destroying me, mm. um, you know, versus a, a versus a choice that's going to build me up and build up the people around me without a an objective moral standard, you don't know. Jean-Paul Sartre, the existentialist philosopher, said you know, he didn't believe in God, and he did not believe there was an objective universal moral standard. And as a result, what he said is, we're condemned to be free. Hmm. And you know, Americans think, what do you mean, condemned? Freedom is a good thing. But it's not. If that kind of freedom, where you have, you have no guidance, for your life, no sense of right or wrong, never knowing whether the choices you're making are going to be good or bad for you. This is a condemnation. This is a terrible form of being lost, to use a biblical term. You know, we talk about being p- people being lost morally, but they're lost intellectually as well. Mm-hmm. Jay, we used to say that, by the way. They're lost intellectually. Mm. And ministering to people is not just ministering to them morally, but showing them the truth intellectually as well as is part of the gospel and part of the you know the life-saving message that we bring to people so i think if people can take apologetics out of the classroom and realize even people who are not quote-unquote intellectuals still have to make sense of life i have so many students who are not intellectuals but they still you know they're cheerleaders they're football players you know whatever they still want to make sense of life Right. And that's where apologetics comes in. It shows why Christianity makes sense, and it answers their deep, personal, ex- existential questions about life. Mm. By the way, Nancy, the friend that invited me to hear you that night, she and I are members of a C.S. Lewis book club together. And I just thank God for his ministry. And when it comes to apologetics, how his name seems to always come up to people who are really seeking answers and have deep questions. I think that's just really, really cool. But in your other books, you've dealt a lot with um, truth and big picture worldview topics. What made you decide to write a book like this one, tackling um, a lot of the hot button issues of our day? Since we've been talking about Schaefer, I will tie it back to Schaefer. Um, okay. One of his most important insights was that the concept of truth mm. has been splintered, been broken in half, has been fractured. And the, the background here is all civilizations have thought that there's a natural order and a moral order, and that the two are integrated. There's a single universe, and therefore our knowledge of the universe is also an integrated whole. 
But in the West, starting with the scientific revolution, many people started to say, no, 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 there's really only one form of really reliable knowledge, and that's scientific facts, empirically verifiable facts. Mm -hmm. Well, what does that do then to moral and theological truths? They cannot be stuffed into a test tube or studied under the microscope. And so many people concluded they're not really truths. They're just personal opinion. And if you get on Twitter today or Facebook, you'll find that view is so common. Mm -hmm. People think that's just, they'll say, that's just your opinion. That's just your subjective view. Keep it to yourself. And so, and Schaefer helped people, Christians to understand this was the major, the major barrier to, to the gospel message today is that when you tell them Christianity is true, they no longer know what you mean by truth. Then, as soon as you start talking about theological, moral truths, those don't qualify as truths. Hmm. And he used the uh, imagery of two stories in a building to show how truth had been split in half. He said in the lower story is science and reason, which is thought to be testable, objective truth. And then all other forms of truth, including aesthetic truth, by the way, since you guys are artists. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Aesthetic truth, moral truth, theological truth have been thrown into an upper story where they're not really truths. They're just subjective experiences, personal preferences. And so as soon as you start talking to a secular person or even a lot of Christians about a Christian truth, they automatically, unreflectively, sort of knee-jerk reaction they, they throw it up into their mental upper story and think you're talking about, well, this is, this is what makes me feel good. You know, this, this is what gives my life meaning. And they'll, they'll say, well, that's nice for you. Mm. <laughs> I'm glad you find meaning that way. But they don't think it has any purchase on them because they don't think it's an objective truth. Now, I write about this um, division. This turns out to be incredibly helpful in understanding the secular mind and what we're up against. So I wrote about it in my book, Total Truth. Um, that's that's the whole theme of the book, is how do we understand this split view of truth? And when I went to, um, I wanted to write a book on the arts, so that's Saving Leonardo. And to my great surprise, when I started reading uh, art historians, they said, art has been split into two major themes. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. They, uh, the first one I read was an intellectual historian who called it idealist, the idealist stream in art. Versus the naturalist stream in art. And you can kind of figure naturalism will be lower story. Uh, dealing with, uh, and these are artists who think they have to follow the lead of whatever the scientific worldview tells us is true. Uh, and then the idealist stream in art, which is the romantics who said no. Who said no, we don't want to be just uh, materialist and scientific and naturalistic. We want to uh, retain some kind of a a realm of meaning and morals and humanity and free will and so on. And so art itself split into two parts. And I thought, that's that's amazing. And I wrote about that in Saving Leonardo. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading about ethical issues. And sure enough, the same division is crucial for understanding ethical issues. Uh, let, let me, it might be easiest if I jump in with an example. Let's sure. take, let's take abortion. It turns out that the most important uh, strategy for understanding secular arguments for abortion is that even the human being has been split into two parts. Mm-hmm. So that 
for example, if you read the professional bioethicists, uh, you know, the ones who really frame uh, cultures thinking on these issues, okay. they will admit that life begins at conception. Hmm. They'll admit it. The evidence from science, from genetics and DNA is too strong to deny it. So how do they get around that fact of science? Well, they split the person into an upper story and a lower story. They say, okay, the lower, sto lower story is where we talk about science, right? So on the scientific level, biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, human, uh, the fetus is human. Yes, we acknowledge that. But they'll say the fe that's not enough to qualify for legal protection or to have moral status. Hmm. Instead, the, the fetus has to earn the right to life by becoming a person. And so in essence, it has to jump into the upper story where we talk about values and, and legal status. And, and bioethicists will say, well, it's not really a person until it's developed certain cognitive abilities, mental abilities, a certain level of self-awareness, cognitive functioning, and so on. And so what they're saying is a fetus can be human at one point, but not a person until sometime later. Mm -hmm. So clearly these are two separate things. So it's that division that is at the heart of the arguments for abortion today. And Christians, unless Christians understand that, they will not be effective in countering the, the pro-abortion rhetoric. Wow. Amazing. That's so instructive. And, you know, uh, so after we found out we were going to have you on the podcast, Nerva and I binged read your whole book, Love Thy Body, this week, which we highly recommend yes, to everyone. Yes, so good. Uh, Stephen did not get to binge read it because he actually has a real job and three <laughs> kids. But we did actually go through the whole thing. And what I noticed was how you connected each of these issues that can seem unrelated, like transgenderism, homosexuality, the sexual revolution, hookup culture, all that stuff. You connected it to this deep-rooted worldview issue. And I love the analogy that you gave in the intro where you said, often these these kind of hot topics are like the waves of the ocean where the real the real movement that's going on is at the tectonic level beneath. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what was so instructive about this book is you connected it to that split in Western thought yeah. at the level of, of modernism slash enlightenment, postmodernism slash romantic, and how that all connects. How, how do you tie this to Darwinian evolution and, and teleology? Maybe, maybe you could explain for our listeners what, what teleology is and how the, the materialist Darwinian evolution theory led to, to kind of these ideas and these splits? As you can see from the example in abortion, what secular bioethicists are really saying is that as long as you're merely human, putting merely in quotation marks there, as long as you're merely human, you have no rights. You have no right to life. You have no legal status, no right to protection. As long as the fetus See, this is what is hard for Christians to get around their minds around because we typically argue, well, wait a minute, the fetus is human. Well, the, the you know, cutting edge arguments on the secular side today say, sure, sure, it's a human, but it's biologically human. And as long as they say that, they say it's just a disposable piece of matter. You know, it can be killed for any reason or for no reason. It can be used in research and experiments 
It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be picked through for sellable body parts, as Planned Parenthood does, and then tossed out with the other medical waste. So being human is no longer seen as enough for human rights. And then you say, wow, why did the secular culture come to have such a low view of being human? And the answer to that is what you just raised. It's the Darwinian view of evolution, because essentially what Darwin said is that a human being is a product of mindless, purposeless forces, and therefore the body has no intrinsic purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. Mm. And the mind can, is free to use it any way it wants. And so this is where the, you have to push this argument back even to, into science. There was a, um, a quote that I, I used that when you heard me the other night, Nerva, um, from a New, New Yorker magazine. And it said, the loyalty oath of modernity, yeah. which is quite a grand phrase. Yeah. The loyalty oath of modernity hmm. is that homo sapiens are without purpose. Hmm. And, they, or, and, then, and then they use, and they actually use the word telos. It's without, human life is without purpose or telos. And telos is the Greek word for purpose or goal. And that's where the word teleology came from, the word you just mentioned. So teleology just means purpose-driven or having a purpose, a goal. And I would say what Christians need to argue is that science itself shows that living things are made for a purpose. I mean, it's very obvious that eyes are made for seeing, ears are made for hearing, wings made for flying, and fins are made for swimming. In fact, Modern genetics tells us that the entire um, the the development of the entire organism is driven by an inbuilt purpose or plan. Mm. And so, what Christians are saying is, we need to take our lead from what we can know objectively about science. If you are pro science, then you should be pro life. That's that's a that's a switch right there because typically, um, you know, when I was coming up, so I remember taking biology in high school, and that was one of the the sources of my original struggle with the truth of Christianity was I was you know obviously taught Darwinian evolution, and I saw the implications of that mindless, purposeless process and what it meant for the rest of life, and it's you know they're they're te they teach this you kind of were weaned on it in Western civilization, and it sort of sets this trajectory up. To, to remove all the upper story that you talk about from life and really sets us up for this, the dichotomy that you talk about between being a human and then having this upper story of, of being a person. And so you can see how all this follows really from our, from our education, which is really interesting. That view of Darwinism that kind of lowers the value of the human body, you have said that Christianity actually has a high view of the body compared to that, that secular view. And so can you explain that a little more? What does it mean that the Christian has a higher view of the body? Yeah, this is interesting because I've had a few people, uh, I'm reading my book, Love Thy Body, have found, found this one of the more difficult things for them to accept because... They have been so trained with the idea that Christianity has a low view of the body, right? Um, yeah, because because it. of the Christian ethic that says, you know, don't do it. It's a sin. <laughs> um, it's wrong. We have sure. this 
stereotype that Christianity is mostly negative. And it, I, I even um, had a Christian philosopher who you will know, so he will go unnamed. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Wrote, wrote a, a basically positive review of the book, but he could not accept this. He said, no, no, the secular view, the materialist view has a higher view because uh, it says matter is all that mm. exists. And so it actually exhausts the, the human body. And what he doesn't understand is, no, if the human body is a product of uh, meaningless, mindless forces, mm. it's just matter in motion with no higher meaning then Richard Dawkins is right. He says it's just a meat machine. Mm. In fact, um, it might be good for us to get into another topic of the book because um, the, the sexuality, sexuality issues also rest on a low view of the body. Mm. And this is, again, the Christians um, need to get their mind around this so that we can change the way we talk to secular people. Uh, on homosexuality, for example, it expresses a low view of the body. Because what it's really saying is, well, even non-Christians, you know, I've talked to a lot of secular people, even non-Christians will acknowledge that biologically, on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual and reproductive system is designed. And so in order to embrace a same-sex identity, is to implicitly contradict that design. Mm. It's to say, why should my body inform my identity? Why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? You know, my body is mine, it's a, and, and my mind is free to use it any way it wants. And it, I... Um, it's fascinating to me that there's actually an outspoken lesbian who uses exactly that argument to defend homosexuality. Her name is Camille Paglia, and many Christians know her because she's a well-known intellectual. Camille Paglia. And listen to the way she defends being a lesbian, being homosexual. On the one hand, Paglia rejects the sort of postmodern idea that sex is just a social construction. Um, it's, it's, that she says, no, no, that's not true. Nature has made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But then she asks, and these are her exact words, she says, why not defy nature? After all, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. So that's the logic of the secular view. If our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces, hmm. then they have no purpose that we're morally obligated to respect. They convey no moral message. They give no clue to our identity and how we should act. And we can do with, with them whatever we see fit. So you see, the Christian answer to homosexual, homosexuality has to start with that. It has to say, no, nature is teleological, to use your word. Mm -hmm. It was designed for a purpose. Science itself tells us that nat nature exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that when we live in harmony with that purpose, when we live in tune with our biological sex, then we will be happier and healthier. 
you also talk about how this this split of you know the the human kind of the the, the biology on the bottom and the the person the feelings the mind on the top informs the transgender movement can you talk a little bit about that right it's even more obvious there that there's a, a the split between the body and the person with the body in the lower story where it's devalued and the person or the feelings your inner life in the upper story where that's all that counts in fact transgender activists argue explicitly that gender your upper story your feeling of gender has nothing to do with biological sex. There was a BBC documentary that said at the heart of the debate is the idea that your mind can be at war with your body. So that's how much antagonism they see between the upper and the lower story. It's at war with your body. And of course, who wins? Who wins is your mind. And so uh, there's there's even a... um. It's filtering down even to young people. Kindergartners are being taught your body has nothing to do with who you are. It's not part of your authentic self. And I even um, found a website for parents raising gender-neutral children. And they've they've dubbed it babies, they. Babies. But on the website, it explicitly says there is no such thing as biological sex. No such thing as biological sex. And so, again, what should Christians' response be? It should see, It should be, why accept such an extreme devaluation of the body? And even secular people, this is good news, secular people are starting to see that, uh, that transgender ideology involves what they call body hatred. I read an interview on a secular uh, website with a 14-year-old girl who had lived as a trans boy for three years Hmm. from age 11 and then had reclaimed her identity as a girl. And she said, the turning point came when I realized it's not conversion therapy to learn to love your body. Hmm. And I thought, this this came out unfortunately after my book was already in print. But I, I thought, what a wonderful quote that would have been for a book titled "Love Thy Body." Yes, it means that Christians do have a wonderful opportunity to show that a biblical ethic is based on loving the body, that it expresses a positive view of who we are as physically embodied beings. You know, Nancy, in your book, you touch on intersex and how sometimes this can be used to, um, in arguments to deconstruct gender binary. How can we um, equip ourselves to effectively address this and when it arises, the idea of intersect? This is such a common argument. Okay. New, York Times had, New York Times just had a big article on it. It is everywhere, so I'm glad you asked it. Mm-hmm. So what is intersex? And does it imply that sex is a spectrum instead of a male-female binary? Well, an intersex person is simply someone whose reproductive anatomy is ambiguous or atypical due to a malfunction in their genes or their hormones. Okay. They're about 2.02% of the population. In other words, 99.98% of people are male or female. And in strictly scientific terms, that qualifies as a reliably uh, supported biological fact. Humans are binary. Mm -hmm. Um, And 
even intersex people are still discernibly, identifiably male with some malfunctions or female with some malfunctions. A tiny, tiny minority uh, doctors are sometimes not quite sure at birth. And the, the trend today is to allow them to mature um, until they have a, a greater sense of themselves. But even so, they're not a third sex. There are only two gametes. There's sperm and there's egg. There's no spectrum in between. And so our argument should be that intersex people are just people with physical differences. And the church and the society should accept them and protect them like anyone else with physical differences. They should not be used as political football Mm. by people who want to deconstruct the male-female binary. When I was writing my book, Love Thy Body, I was actually contacted by an intersex woman. Um, and so I, it was great. I was very grateful that she contacted me because then I had some, I had some personal stories to tell of intersex people uh, you know, from their own mouth. And she was um, an intersex woman who was Christian. And she, she gave me this quote. It's a wonderful quote. She said, how do you think it feels being a pawn in someone else's game? It hurts to be shoved into the LGBT camp by either side. Wow. So I think that's what we should remember. They don't want to be treated as political footballs. And that's how they're being treated now by, by the transgender movement, is, is they're being used for political purposes without any regard for who they are, their own agenda, their own needs, and their own interests. And Christians should stand up for them. We should be, we should be standing up to protect them against this culture war. That's so good, Nancy. What, real quick, could you give us a brief description of the Christian view of the body as opposed to what we've just discussed so far and why that makes a difference for these issues? I might answer that by saying, um, focusing on the argument that, to my own surprise, has been one of the most persuasive with both uh, with my secular friends and with Christians. This one took me by surprise. Um, the argument is based on environmentalism. And you say, wow. wait a minute, what's the connection? <laughs> and one thing we have learned from the environmental movement is that to avoid pollution and ecological disasters, mm. we need to work with the structure of nature. We need to respect the natural order. You know, we can intervene, but when we do so, we, we need to work with it and not against the natural order. In other words, um, we may not do as we see fit, mm. to use Camille Paglia's words, when it comes to the environment. Sure. And so in the same way, what Christians are saying is that we should respect the structure of our own biological nature, that the biological correspondence between male and female is not some evolutionary accident. It's part of the original creation that God pronounced very good. That our sexual nature possesses a language. It's part of the created order that's declaring the glory of God. And I first discovered how powerful this argument was when I was talking to a secular friend who's very much into environmentalism. And of course, they all, all are. It's one of those things everyone knows they should be, if they're, even if they're not. But um, when I said, look, we're just saying, just like you should respect the tree out there, you know, mm. or respect the river. Uh, enough not to pour pollutants into it. We're saying we should respect our biological 
biological sex, our biological nature. And she said, oh, okay, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> and here's a, you know, this very secular person who has no, no positive views of Christianity at all. And it worked. In fact, um, in fact, another surprising um, argument that we can also make is that feminists are starting to realize that there's a problem here. You know, feminists are starting to say, well, wait a minute, if anyone can claim to be a woman, then how can we protect women's rights? Mm. If, if, if you can't protect someone on the basis of being biologically female, then how can you justify protecting them? You, you cannot protect people in, in the law if you cannot define that category of people. Wow. And so we can make, I'm actually part of a group that is, um, it's a fascinating group. It's called Hands Across the Aisle, and it's conservative Christian women mm-hmm. and radically leftist, socialist, lesbian, feminist. And That's a group. Connect- <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's amazing. It's really fun. Uh, and it's amazing to find that we're connecting on this issue of wanting to protect women against the transgender ideology wow. that says, Sex is a social construct. Uh, anyone who wants to claim to be a female is a female based on just how they feel. And therefore, um, there's no way to protect actual biological females anymore. And so, again, if we can connect, if we connect, can, can connect with non-Christians who are seeing the problem, that's another very effective strategy. Well, that's great. And again, for our listeners, we're talking about the, the book, Love Thy Body. And I would just highly recommend it. Yes. Even even the intro and first chapter, Nancy, where you talk about the high view of of, of matter in the Christian worldview, how it's a, it's a creation of God and, and how the human body mm. was so valuable to God that he decided to, you know, send Jesus in the incarnation to take on human flesh. And that you talk about the story of creation, fall and redemption and the fact that God is ultimately going to consummate it all with transformed physicality. It's not, you know, the soulish platonic realm, but it's actually him transforming the physical new heavens and new earth. And he has such a value on, mm. on matter. And that's why we value it as, as Christians. And I think it's a beautiful picture, but you mentioned just a minute ago about law. And I, and as we wrap up here, can you talk a little bit about, you know, sometimes you hear the idea we should just live and let live, but you mentioned pre-political rights. Uh, I would like for you to talk a little bit about that. And then maybe if you can briefly tell our listeners about this, the Equality Act and what's going on with that and how we can respond as Christians. Well, you raised two questions there, and I'd like to answer both of them. I would like to talk for a minute about the biblical view of matter that you mentioned mm-hmm. first, because... Sure. Uh, um, I, I think that's so important when talking to a Christian audience. Uh, we have lost our own heritage here. Mm. And one of my students put it this way. Growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. Mm. True. That's, true. That's, that's a great thumbnail sketch. And what we need to recover is the, notion, the understanding that the early church also faced a culture that was permeated by a low view of the material world, though for very, very different reasons. But it did, the early church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that was permeated with Platonism and Gnosticism 
and even Manichaeism, which was a, even Augustine was a Manichae. All of these isms treated this, the material world as the realm of evil and corruption, and and you know, you you wanted to you wanted to uh, extract yourself, escape from the physical realm. In fact, salvation in Gnosticism was defined as escaping from the physical realm. They called the the body the prison house of the soul. And so in this context, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary because it said, no, the uh, universe was, well, Gnosticism, because the universe was so evil, it taught that the universe was created by a low-level deity, in fact, an evil god. And you know, no, no self-respecting god would get his hands dirty mucking about with matter. <laughs> and so Christians had to stand against that very decisively. And they had to say, no, the, the universe was not created by an evil God, but by a good God. And therefore, it's intrinsically good. But what we no longer realize is that the greatest scandal, historically speaking, at that time was the claim that that same God not only created the world, but entered into the world. And took on a human body himself. And so the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And, uh, and Jesus, and when he was executed on a Roman cross, we might say, well, he did escape the material world, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. But what did he do then? He came back. Exactly. Right, in, in a physical body, a physical resurrection. So... The resurrection of the body is, well, as, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, the resurrection of the body was utter foolishness to the Greeks. <laughs> to them, coming back to the realm of the body was not, phys- was not spiritual progress. Mm. Still have the idea that heaven is going to be co- totally spiritual. We'll be floating around in spiritual bodies as, as, as spirits without bodies. And that that's the ultimate goal is to be free from our bodies. But the scripture does not teach that. It says that just as Jesus had a bodily resurrection, you and I will have a bodily resurrection. And God's not going to scrap the material universe as if he made a mistake the first mm. time around. He's going to restore it and renew it and create a new heavens and a new earth. Amen. Amen. That's the Apostles' Creed. The, right from the beginning, the Apostles' Creed, the resurrection of the body. So what we need to recapture when we talk to our secular friends is that Christianity teaches an astonishingly high view of the physical world. I can tell you there's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. This is a strong point of Christianity. It's a selling point. Mm. And Christians should be absolutely excited about it. And it should be, um, it should be one of the things we, we lead with when we talk to non-Christians. As one of our final questions, too, kind of going back to full circle, you talked about Francis Schaeffer and Labrie and how that affected you going from agnosticism back to Christianity. What would you say to the American church and maybe even the megachurch culture? I work at a, at a fairly large church in Tampa. What's something that we can do to, or what is it something the church can do differently to maybe reach the younger generations, those struggling with these secular worldviews, and how that maybe could help the church also address these LGBT issues? Right. I think, um, you know, let me ask you that with another story. One of my other favorite stories in um, 
Love Thy Body. It was a young woman named Jean who lived as a lesbian for many years and then eventually um, embraced her identity as a female and now is married with two children. And here's how she puts it. She said, I finally came to accept that God had made me female for a reason. And I wanted to live in harm. I wanted to respect my body by living in harmony with the creator's design. And so when we talk to people, we sh- including in the church, because like I said, so many Christians don't get it either. We should always lead with the positive language. Notice the language I've been using here. Uh, respect your body. Honor mm-hmm. the creator's design. Um, live in tune with your body. Uh, respect our biological sex. The church is not using this positive language, but that's what's going to reach people's hearts. Mm-hmm. Is when we help people to see that God wants us to have a high view of our whole self, not just the spirit. We've got that. We've got that down. Um, but that we've that we, He also made our as our bodies. And God could have created us as spiritual beings, right? He could have had us floating around in a in a non-physical, non-material heaven. He could have created us that way in the beginning. Why did he create matter? As you mentioned C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says we shouldn't try to be more spiritual than God. God, <laughs> likes, God likes matter. He created it. Yeah. Which is a wonderful quote. Mm-hmm. So I think our with our, both, both in and outside of the church, we need to lead with the positive. That, right. um, I, I, one of the other stories I tell in Lovely Body is a woman named Rebecca who experienced same-sex attraction for about a 10-year period, even after she got married. To a man. Uh, by the way, you have to say that these days. Right. You got married. <laughs> right. Man. <laughs> Good clarifying. <laughs> and she discussed it with her husband. You know, she was having, um, you know, continuing to have girl crushes even after she, had, she got married. And her husband said to her, because God made you female, whatever your feelings are right now, you can be sure that you will be more fulfilled with a man. Because that's mm-hmm. how God made you. And he applied it to himself. He said, you know, whatever my feelings might be, too. I mean, I'm a man. God made me that way. And I can be sure that I will be more fulfilled with a woman. And so that was the beginning of the turnaround. That made sense. That was Mm. logical. (laughs) It was logical. And so that was the turning point where she eventually, it took a couple years still, eventually uh, was free of her, uh, you know, unwanted uh, lesbian attractions and we have to be we have to be honest with people that you know it's like alcoholism it's not like you'll never have any temptation again mm-hmm. that's unrealistic Re- rebecca told me i still can't watch the lesbian scenes in that um tv series orange is the new black mm-hmm. mm. that lesbian scenes in it and she's like you know I, I can't watch things like that so you know it's like it, not being unrealistic temptation is not sin though People w- may still continue to have sexual temptations of various kinds. Um, and, and not everyone is promised total healing in this life. Schaefer, since we talked about Schaefer, Schaefer used to say there's substantial healing in this life, not complete healing. If you look for complete healing, if you ask for all or nothing, you're likely to end up with nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I love how in your book you um, 
remind us and really paint the picture of how real the struggle is for those who grow up with gender dysphoria and the reminder to really have compassion even along with having these right understanding of worldviews that are driving these these issues but just to really have a heart of compassion for those that are walking through these things we hope you enjoyed this interview with nancy piercy we didn't get a chance to cover the pre-political rights and the equality act that's actually in congress right now but if you'd like to hear more about those topics and some other things that we talked about with nancy piercy we invite you to check out our patreon account it's brand new just created and we'll be adding some content there in the coming months interview with the mountain prophet this additional episode with nancy piercy and you can find that at patreon.com slash freemindfm that's patreon.com slash freemindfm and when you become a supporter you'll get access to these bonus episodes of the free mind podcast and even more content we'd again encourage you to rate us five stars with a comment review in apple podcasts we ask you to do it there because it really helps discoverability across all podcast platforms we actually had a few of you do that last week and we really appreciate it so go ahead and go to apple podcasts if you're a windows and android user you can download itunes on windows and give us a five-star rating there again you can follow us and comment at freemind fm on twitter and instagram and then freemind podcast fm on facebook thanks for joining us this week Thank you.